From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experience as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. We are joined today by Rick Robinson, a composer and double bassist who was a member of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra for 22 years. Prior to joining the DSO, he played here in the Canton Symphony, as well as up the road with the Akron Symphony. He is the founder of Cut Time Productions, a publishing company dedicated to producing chamber arrangements of orchestral masterworks in an effort to make this music more accessible and available to wider audiences. An accomplished composer of original works as well, his essay after Sibelius will be performed here in Canton next season. Rick Robinson, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thanks a lot, Matthew. Rachel, good to see you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. here. Um, So just to start off, let's talk a little bit about um, how you engaged with music growing up and then what led to your subsequent career in music. Okay. Well, I grew up in a musical family, uh, fortunately. Our mother played piano and liked to sing uh, every day. I mean, it was something she needed to do once she got home from work. It was very liberating. And her mother studied violin at Oberlin, uh, by the way. And and her mother uh, was a composer and pianist and singer and the daughter of the March King of Augusta, Georgia. Mm. So going back five generations... Uh, which includes my older brother and sister who played violin and cello, sax, bass Mm. uh, growing up. There was always music in the house. And even our father taught himself guitar and sang all the time and loved to lead a group of strangers in singing folk songs. So um, it was always around. Classical was always around. uh, And then in music school, middle school, I finally got the chance to Let's see. I went through trumpet, tuba, then cello (laughs) and bass in eighth grade. And then interlocking um, a little bit in the summer and then three years at the Arts Academy, which completely changed my life. I didn't think I had a shot at music. uh, And then until I started to lead at Interlochen Arts Academy. Mm, Yeah. So you attended in your formative years some of the most prestigious musical institutions in our country. You mentioned, of course, Interlochen. You also went to Cleveland Institute of Music, New England Conservatory, and the Aspen Music Festival. What was it like being an African-American in these spheres? Well, how to put it, um, you know, kind of being a rare fish <laughs> in, in the bowl, <laughs> if, if I wanted to look at it that way, or when I did look at it that way, um, you know, was actually kind of nice. I, it, I felt like a bit like a pioneer particularly to be doing strong in it. I had a natural talent for bass. And once I got to CIM, um, you know, I really took off my solo playing and I was, you know, reading music like crazy. So I was quickly on top. And with that kind of confidence uh, through competition, basically, 
um, you know, I excelled all the way. I was top dog. So I, I had no racial issues um, like that in in uh, CIM or NEC or, or even in the jobs that I played, started playing. But, you know, I was principal bass. I made principal bass in Canton Symphony my wow. sophomore year. So, wow. you know, that was a lot to brag about. Yeah. And then I, I graduated CIM a year early and um, needed more work. So I auditioned for principal in Akron Symphony and I won that. Nice. And then for one year. And then I went to Boston to NEC after that. Mm -hmm. So. So, yeah, so you just mentioned that you were in the Canton Symphony. You were there first year. Oh, it was uh, 1982, which was Gerhardt's second season with the symphony. Um, so just like a little fun, do you have any fun stories about being a member of the Canton Symphony with Gerhardt? Well, I, I didn't know it was that. I thought he'd been there forever, as, <laughs> as far as I knew. And, of course, I heard it was a fantastic orchestra, the best uh, freelance orchestra around. Um, and he came and conducted, I was at, um, what's now called National Repertory Orchestra. It was Colorado Philharmonic back mm -hmm. then. He conducted there, said he had a principal bass opening and I played for him there. And he suggested I play for him, uh, him and the personnel manager, Linda Uncafer, um, the next fall, which I did and I, I won it and boy, I learned so much there. Um, so many fun things, but I'm a terrible storyteller, so forgive me, but, um, I can think of this one time we were doing Mahler five and you know, the, the quiet cello solo in the middle of the scherzo, you know, when, when Gustav lost his kid, you know, mm. and he just stopped in rehearsal because these guys were just playing the notes basically. Mm. <laughs> Gerhardt teaches you anything. You don't just play the notes, you know, it's, it's precision and passion. Yeah. But of course this moment called for the opposite of, of passion. It called for, you know, deep inward, you know, grief, barely being able to speak. And he, Gerhardt just made a speech that, that, moment was just so magical such a magical linchpin in the concert of Mahler five uh you know it it's one of those things you never forget yeah, and that's absolutely. what a maestro in classical music can do for us wow yeah. that's wonderful <laughs> so i have a question uh sort of to follow up just about canton currently the canton symphony only has one member uh contract player who is african-american when you were at the orchestra, were you the only one or were there others? Uh, well, no, there was uh, TK Adams, Tim Adams, the principal oh. timpanist. Yeah, yeah. And he's kind of a legend now. Um, mm -hmm. He was a legend then, actually, particularly since uh, he and, and two other CIM percussionists started the Exotic Birds, a dance band that uh, had one or two really great albums. And boy, they were a lot of fun to dance to. So he was a guy working on, on both sides of the aisle. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't at that point, but, but he was inspirational. He was a great leader. Um, I don't think, no, there were no other blacks in the orchestra at that time. There was Lucina Horner on viola. She was half Latina. Um, but no, yeah. there, there weren't even a lot of Asians. Uh, in the U.S. playing uh, mm -hmm. with us at that time. So that seemed to have happened later. Right, and mm -hmm. which, of course, is very different now. That we have a large Asian representation in the orchestra at this point. And just a note for our listeners, yeah, Tim saying, Adams yeah. uh, is one of the performers who recorded our theme music for yeah. the podcast. 
So really? yeah. yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Eric Gould asked Tim Adams, who used to be the timpani player here. And so it's wonderful that you bring him up. Um, and you, you mentioned a little bit, you know, when we were talking about what was it like to be African-American in, in all these institutions. And you said it, you, it, it never really, um, bothered you or seemed like any, any anything out of the, you actually were like, Oh, I'm, I'm interesting in these different situations. And you said, even in Akron and Canton, um, you never felt any racial issues there. Was there a moment where you did, and maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit on this, but was there a moment where that did become, uh, did get on your radar and something that you realized? No, I want to say no. You know, my whole focus was to focus on the music, on, on what I could do and, you know, how I could lead, um, how I could make a big five orchestra, obviously. Um, you know, I, I watched several of the series interviews and I watched the one with Joanne Folletta last night. And, you know, I completely agreed with her point that, um, you know, she kind of didn't pay any attention to right. the sexism. You know, she just wanted to make good music and, yeah. you know, get as far as she could. Um, I'm a little like that. Yeah. I know, you know, America's, it's still got ways to go. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, we've come a long ways. So I consider the the hundred years past uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, which is the year I was born, 1963. I know a lot of you are gonna start doing the math. <laughs> I'll be 58 <laughs> in a couple of months. Um, but you know, that, that this was kind of a new day after the civil rights, uh, era. Um, but unfortunately it kind of led to a split, you know, between, you know, black power movement and, um, you know, those of us who are taking advantage of, of the new openness to, to try to get ahead. So I was empowered by a few affirmative things. I won, you know, some small scholarships to attend CIM. Um, I got a loan for a base um, because I was black, um, you know, through the Music Assistance Fund. Uh, and now there are things like the Sphinx competition yeah. and the Sphinx organization's uh, empowerment uh, things that, um, you know, solve, serve a, a bit of the same function. So, and I think they're needed uh, to some extent, but, you know, we also have to rise to at least the floor of the standards of the orchestra that we're trying to get into. Right. So um, it, it's got to, it's got to come from both sides to, to rise. Yeah. And that's, that's what I focused on. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, so just so our listeners know, later this season, we, we've talked repeatedly in season one about the Sphinx organization, and we will have a representative from the Sphinx yeah. organization on sure. later this season. Yeah. So Great. we will learn a lot more about that. Mm -hmm. Now, Rick, you got into the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, which is not a big five, but it's it's the next tier down yeah. from the big five. <laughs> While you were still in your 20s and you uh, ended up playing there 22 years. But the circumstances surrounding your hiring were very unique. Can you tell us a little bit about the process and circumstance that led to your hiring in Detroit? Sure. Well, I was freelancing in Boston at the time, and I got a call out of the blue from the personnel manager of Detroit Symphony. Um, he said, um, we'd been talking with the Music Assistance Fund, which had an internship program, fellowship program, placing black classical artists, string players in some major orchestras. Mm -hmm. And they were considering 
having me, uh, you know, be a, one of the fellows. And I basically said I wasn't interested. You know, I was doing okay. I, I didn't want to get involved in the racial politics, particularly in Detroit. And he said, okay, I can understand that. But, uh, you know, next time you're home, why don't you come into my home and play for me? Uh, he was the bass player, assistant principal bass, Stephen Molina. So I went and played for him. And next thing I know, I'm on the sub list. So I'm coming back from Boston, staying at my parents' home to sub in Detroit Symphony Orchestra, probably only about five weeks out of a year. And then we go, they invite me on a European tour. Uh, and there are two other uh, black string players in also subbing in, and we go along on this tour. Now, back home, um, there were two state legislators who were black who sat on a committee with uh, money for the orchestra. I think it was like one and a quarter million. Mm. And they were threatening to withhold their votes. They were like two of three, I think, people on this committee, unless DSO hired more black members. So during a European tour, I might add, so <laughs> the players had a meeting. Deborah Borda, the famed Deborah Borda, was our executive director at the time. And she suggested that the players consider hiring one of us three. They voted uh, overwhelmingly to hire me. I, I chose to take it. And um, that's how I won my position in the, the, the DSO. Mm. So... That, you know, that's a very, it's a different process than a lot of people think about when someone right. gets hired, right? That it, it, you, you definitely, I mean, you're a fine, you're an amazing player and you obviously deserved to be in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, but it's, it's strange circumstances. So they've, so the musicians themselves voted to have you in the, in the symphony. So your fellow musicians knowing that the process was a little different, did it lead to them receiving you differently than someone who went through a traditional process or 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 was it since they they voted for you was it pretty seamless of a transition into the orchestra well it was certainly usual unusual uh, particularly you know since it kind of went around the union collective bargaining agreement right um so there was a lot of press with it but really it was just doing my job and doing it well the thing is, I always like to prove myself. I, I was a hot shot. You know, I, I won a concerto competition, uh, Haddonfield, New Jersey Symphony Concerto Competition a, a couple years before that. So I was feeling great. You know, I, there was there was no one who had anything on me. And I did recitals. I did a, I did a recital at Wayne State University that year. You know, I proved I had the chops. Um, so there was no there was no pushback and my um, colleagues backed me up mm. amongst musicians and other orchestras because you know they did get a little you know crap uh for doing this mm. because they were worried about a precedent being set uh, of hiring uh around auditions so right. uh but it all went well the situation never recurred again because almost no states give money to orchestras these days yeah. so in fact that was i think that might have been the third to last year that um that DSO got money from Mich the state of Michigan. Wow. So that, that was is, never an issue again. Wow. That is, that is really interesting. And you, you know, you talk about precedent and we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, lack of 
minority representations in orchestras, players in orchestras. Mm -hmm. And how do we, how do we encourage more young people to go into classical music, give them the tools to be able to succeed in it. And then so they can get to a place where they can win auditions, right? That's, that's the big question. And so it's really interesting to hear your, your story. And it's just so unique. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's just, I just, I think it's, it's really interesting thinking about how, how do we, um, get more minorities in orchestras, but do it in a way that it's not just, you know, that it's authentic and it's real and it's, it's valuable for everyone. So I, I think it's really interesting to hear that story from you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, even more importantly, it's, it's the union issues because, mm. you know, you have to consider the fairness to um, the people who won the auditions, right. Uh, won their tenure and they're working towards a pension. You know, if you're having a destination orchestra, um, you know, you've got to be top notch because it's a very competitive field. I mean, orchestras don't admit this, but they they compete with each other. <laughs> they compete with the uh, European originals. Uh, you know, it's just <laughs> about competition because we 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 make our confidence uh, in this subtle kind of competition, and it's not a direct thing. In fact, I've been proposing a direct thing to get more general public interested in classical music you know we need a movie we need a competition <laughs> uh, a betting pool who's going to do best this year <laughs> right 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 uh as well as casual classical which uh, yeah. i hope we can get into oh yeah later. for sure absolutely so the detroit symphony has a long-standing tradition of playing and recording music by american composers and including african-american composers I know that they, you guys recorded the symphonies of William Grant Still, uh, I believe, while you were in the orchestra under Nema Yarvi. Uh, what has this meant to you to be able to play this music as an African-American musician? <laughs> Nema Yarvi, um, besides being a fantastic classical conductor, uh, also loved jazz. In fact, he also <laughs> loved to talk about jazz. Of course, he asked me if I played jazz. I, I really don't unless I write it all out. So, <laughs> um, but he just loved the swing. So we recorded Duke Ellington and William Grant still, we recorded the fabulous, uh, William Dawson, Negro symphony, Indeed, or whatever it's called. Negro Fantastic folk piece. symphony. You, you would, yeah. The Canton symphony, uh, CD library actually has that the, the name of Yarvi recording, which I've listened to and it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, not only that, but every year the Detroit Symphony did a gospel concert um, with about, you know, seven uh, uh, singers from about seven or eight black churches in the area. And it was a fantastic, fantastic event. You know, it was just so feel good. You know, black music has, as long as I've been in the DSO, has been a strong part of DSO's uh, repertoire every year. So... Um, so we did a lot of that. And when Naime came in and, and wanted to record, you know, about three CDs a year and do the William Grant still, we recorded three of his symphonies, as I recall. Um, you know, it was a great pleasure to learn this music because I'd never played it anywhere else, mm. you know. And um, not only did I love the first still symphony so much, I, I ripped it off from my cut time ensembles. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> For, uh, for all three of them. So uh, uh, it's just lively and it blends, you know, the urban pop of its day 
with classical counterpoint and development, which is what I do in a lot of my compositions, about half of my compositions. But we can talk about that later. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm curious, the symphony is playing this music. There's an annual gospel concert featuring people, singers from black churches. Uh, I gotta, I gotta re rephrase that. Sure. Um, we stopped doing the gospel concert probably about four years into my tenure, unfortunately. Mm. Okay. However, there was at that time and to this day, an annual classical roots concert that is around um, excellence of, of blacks in classical music. So, oh, okay. okay. Very cool. So, all, but all of these efforts to perform this music, did this lead to engagement with the black community that would bring people actually into the concert hall for classical concerts? And has it, has it been sustained and is it a better, would you say a better engagement of the black community in Detroit than most of its other peer orchestras in other cities? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. It, it's only grown, as a matter of fact. Now, I should I should preface, I'm on the board of trustees for DSO now. <laughs> so I have to speak highly of them. And, <laughs> and it's quite natural because I'm, I'm very happy and satisfied with um, what DSO is trying to do, uh, particularly our social progress committee, on which I serve, <sighs> is going to be offering, um, you know, uh, music to any student who wants to learn music, kind of an after-school program uh, that we're working on, and it's, it's gonna be gangbusters. Um, but yeah, engagement with the black community of Detroit has been mostly of the, the white collar. Um, so upper middle class, you know, to the black rich uh, in Detroit would come out and uh, sponsor and serve on committees and, and bring friends out and get tickets out for at least the classical roots uh, concert and the gospel concert back then. Uh, as to regular concerts, um, it's still just a handful mm. of people um, of who are black that I would say. And, you know, it tends to be still less than 1%, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. But I think that's, that, that is the, the, the question that I think a lot of us are trying to answer and there is no answer to it of how do we make classical music feel more open and more people want to attend classical concerts and I know that we'll, we'll get into a lot of the work that you've been doing um, but I, I wanted we wanted to kind of talk a little bit about um, you know Detroit Symphony has had kind of a unique spot in this. There's a couple other orchestras that I know have done a lot of work with the black community, St. Louis being one of them, um, that has have been doing sustained efforts for a while. I know Cincinnati actually has a couple of programs as well. And Atlanta. Um, and Atlanta yeah. for sure um, that do a really wonderful stuff, but it's still kind of, you. it's unique. <laughs> and there's a lot, a lot of major American orchestras don't have that sustained effort, but a lot are trying to now, which was, I think a very good thing, but, you know, looking at the Detroit symphony and Detroit in general has been through a lot over the past 50 years as a city. And the symphony definitely reflected a lot of the strife that the city went through. Um, so can you talk about what it was like to be in Detroit during a time where it went from being 
you know, one of the most populous cities to dropping down to 27th most populous and, and all of these different things that happened in Detroit, just from someone who's from there, what, what was it like to be there during this time? Yeah, well, I missed the heyday. The, um, the demographic decline started the late 50s, mm -hmm. I understand. Yeah. Um, so I don't remember Detroit as the, the Paris of the Midwest uh, days, but, uh, but we did see a lot of uh, drift and uh, rust belt uh, after the, the 70s. And, yeah. you know, manufacturing began to move around the country and then out of the country. Um, so everything began to change and Detroit was adrift and the blue collar workers, you know, basically grew bitter, bitter, uh, about what's going on. But really when we look at it, we see an atomization of, of culture, you know, it's everywhere. We used to just have five TV stations and now we've got cable and YouTube, um, there's just so many choices that, that people gravitate to what makes them feel good rather than the challenge of something that will help them grow personally. Mm. You know, and I can understand that I, you know, I like to sing along to a song or, you know, dance to some really great music, you know, uh, and then try to do that through my instrument. Mm. Um, but as far as what, um, um, new listeners might want to, uh, how new listeners might want to interact with classical music. I, I think there's a lot we can do, but it's, it, it's going to be take thinking and working outside the box and with extra musical ideas. Mm -hmm. So in, in Detroit specifically, um, you, you mentioned that a lot of the, the patrons of the symphony are, are white. Um, but there is a large black population in in the city of Detroit, and and you you've done some work with the Urban Requiem Project, and I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you've done with them and what what that project is and what it what it kind of is trying to encompass. Because we just mentioned, you know, the decline of Detroit, and I think that's a big part of why they were formed. Let's see. Um, yeah. Well, I should preface it that. I've started two ensembles, cut time players, mm -hmm. the mixed octet, and then started composing and started the string ensemble, uh, cut time symphonica. Now with those compositions, half of those compositions try to blend neo-romanticism with uh, urban pop and, you know, including gospel and Latin and a little R&B and things that people will recognize and be able to hopefully just hang on to mm. uh, for the, the rest of the magic carpet ride of, of music. Um, one of those experiments, and this is very recent, only the last three, four years. Um, let's see, I did a concert with Symphonica at Detroit um, Institute of Arts, and this man approached me, said he, he represents the poets of the Urban Requiem Project, uh, which began at Youthville. Uh, with these students who wanted to learn poetry and Detroit history. And Virgil Taylor is the leader of Urban Requiem Project, was fluent in both. And, um, mm. and one of his pupils uh, works with him now, a really, really fine street poet named Kevlar Africa. And we've been able to um, give more context with the poetry and the classical music lends the urgency to the poetry. Mm. So, you know, one hand washes the other and, and that's the kind of partnerships 
that will help us translate, you know, or at least introduce some of the values of, of music or classical music in this case, or strings, um, you know, into places where maybe it hasn't gone before. Mm-hmm. So it's been a great experiment. Uh, our biggest success was a, uh, a small Kresge grant to um, create a new piece called Phantom Detroit, uh, which is about gentrification uh, going on here. And it, it ends very on very positive notes uh, with a really great funk fugue. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, that can be heard from my SoundCloud feed. Nice. Wonderful. So just to, talking about Detroit, uh, you mentioned uh, gentrification cu- currently going on. Detroit has been for a long time one of, if not the most segregated cities in this country. What is it about what happened in Detroit specifically that caused the segregation and racial issues to be magnified even as compared to its other peer cities? Well, I I think it's across the country, actually, particularly, you know, with... um, political events that we've had over the last 10 years uh, that we've been growing more divided. Mm-hmm. But in Detroit, um, back in the day, uh, back in my day, um, I'd say, you know, there is this bitterness after the auto industry mm-hmm. kind of, you know, went elsewhere. A lot of those jobs left never came back. Right. Um, uh, the, the union contracts didn't pay as much as they used to. Um, there became two tiers for, you know, different tiers for new workers than for old workers who've been there a long time. Um, you know, there's a lot to be angry about. And sometimes that anger is more empowering than, than getting a job. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's just very weird place and time, you know, when you've tried to uh, depend on the auto industry and, and then you feel like you have no place else to go. Right. And, and I, well, I, I do- just want to clarify something. So you, you ta- mentioned a couple of times the, the anger and the r- resentment and frustration as, as the auto industry left Detroit was, is, would you say this is anger felt by white workers, white auto workers or former auto workers against the African-American community or just oh, no, felt no. by everybody? No, but by everyone. Okay. I mean, okay. Who worked in the, in the factories. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And their families too. So it's, it's multiple generations of, of bitterness and they compound on each other. Right. So, um, and I, I, I recently sold my home from the East side of Detroit near gross point and all that, and moved back to the inner city um and you know there's just a lot of a lot of bitterness around here yeah and um one has to be very careful where they walk absolutely i think i would i was doing actually a little bit of research on detroit and the history of it and and looking and um a lot as i understand a lot of the workers in the auto in the audio industry were black workers. It was, it was a majority of the inner city people um, in Detroit who worked in these factories. And a lot of, I think what might've caused the bitterness is that the, the, the government of Detroit, local government and and the city, they kept just trying to make the auto industry work in Detroit. And then it never did. It never 
took off again. And so there was a lot of promises made of, you know, we're going to bring jobs back and then nothing came back. And then they did this one thing and then nothing happened. And so this, it's really interesting to talk about this bitterness and this anger, which is, 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 is valid. And it's hard to shake from yourself when over years and years you get promised something and it just never comes to fruition. And then you watch your city kind of deteriorate around you. And, and then you've got a symphony in the middle of all this, that's trying to, you know, cross some boundaries, do some things. Um, but you've, you know, how was the symphony involved with all of this, if at all, when in the in the bitterness or in in all of these efforts to try to to bring something back to the city? Do you remember the symphony ever doing anything in particular? Well, an orchestra is not a, a political institution, right? So it has to be careful um, any political messages that it says mm-hmm. because it tries to raise money from donors who will be on both sides of the aisle. Um, it raises grants from foundations um, that can't get involved in, um, in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can bring people together or try to with concerts like that gospel concert. And right. you know that was one of the saving graces uh, back in my early years here um, to see a lot of people come out to the symphony, even if it wasn't for a Brahms symphony. Yeah, but I think that's about as as far as the orchestra could take it back in the day. Now, today, there's a changing attitude and much more of a willingness to to do something more directly. So that's why we have our social progress committee um, and the new um, uh, music teaching program coming up. So um, we can do a lot more these days. I think it's really cool that you're, I did not know you were on the board of trustees, which is very, very, very cool. How, how long have you been on the board of trustees? Uh, I think it's about seven years now. It was a year after I I quit the orchestra. Gotcha. They were like, please stay. (laughs) 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 That's, I think that's really cool. Um, and, uh, maybe if we get some time at the end, I'll ask you a couple of questions about that, but I'll, I'll let us keep keep going. I was, I was curious while we're, while we're on the board. So, okay. uh, Yeah. Are you, how, how many other black people are on the board, if any, and what efforts are you spearheading currently on the board to engage, better engage the black community of Detroit? Okay. Um, well, I couldn't tell you the exact numbers, but after, let's see, DSO had a strike lockout back in 2010 through 2011 Mm -hmm. and then it restructured its board um and the board of trustees is a group of about 81 of us i think and i think we're at capacity now Mm -hmm. and i want to i want to say there's probably at least a dozen of us uh on that board and of course at least you know one or at least one dozen um from other races too so we have a lot of uh, Middle Easterners here, Chaldeans and uh, Latinx and, um, you know, you, you name it. Mm. Iraqis, a lot of Iraqis here. I don't think we have an Iraqi on the committee. Actually, there's at least one Iraqi on the committee. So um, so it, it's coming along. And um, I am kind of known as the, um, 
as the wild guy, the voice in the wilderness. So <laughs> at just about every meeting I've, I've got, you know, some wild ideas, you know, for the orchestra to at least think about if, if not try to, you know, fully consider or research. So, um, and I, I won't say how much they do or don't listen to me, but, uh, <laughs> um, at least I can suggest some things and, you know, if they don't try them, at least I tried. So Absolutely. that's how it has to be. That's for sure. And so, you know, talking about your wild ideas, um, <laughs> you've mentioned it a couple of times now, but uh, back in 1994, you launched Cut Time Players, which you've mentioned a couple of times. Um, and you did this along with several of your fellow DSO musicians. Um, so can you tell us um, in our audience, about cut time players and why why you started it to begin with sure well i wanted to be a really good ambassador to the wider community uh, once i joined the orchestra and i had an idea when i was at cim actually performing the soldier's tale by igor stravinsky mm. that <clears throat> that if we <clears throat> excuse me if we added flute we could do peter and the wolf we could probably do peter and the wolf uh, and the Sorcerer's Apprentice and Till Eulenspiegel, Merry Pranks. Mm. Um, but it wasn't until I was in DSO and I got music notation software because I was, I was too lazy to write things out by hand <laughs> uh, that I was able to try it. And lo and behold, it, it worked so well. We were, we were booked to do family concerts for the next, uh, you know, three years or so. And that launched us. Then DSO started hiring us to do Tiny Tots concerts and, uh, that went great until we got too expensive. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it, it and then it, it grew into doing corporate events, playing in churches, uh, going up into upper Michigan, outstate, uh, and bringing a little bit of DSO to people who, you know, couldn't make it to Orchestra Hall. Right. So, and it was just fantastic. We learned so much um, that I always wanted to do more. Right. Do you know what kind of impact cut time players has had as far as introducing people who had never thought about orchestral music before into the sounds of these great masterworks as far as potentially creating new audiences for orchestra hall and other concert halls yeah no is the short answer <laughs> i mean you really can't know how things are going to spin out for people mm. and it could spin out over years oh i remember that that time the dso guys you know came and played at our church you know um you know if somebody calls up that memory and says i really should go to a symphony concert and actually do it you know that's the kind of impact we ideally want um and the sooner the better but you know i can't possibly know who took us up on those invitations. Mm -hmm. Of course. So so basically the whole idea of cut time was to take these large scale orchestral works, which you can only really see at a concert hall because there's right. 20,000 people on stage. There's not that many, but right. there's a lot of people yeah. on stage. And you yeah. take that and you're like, all right, I'm gonna make this for eight people. <laughs> yeah. um, so then you can just be like, and I can take these eight people and I can move them around where I yeah. need them to go. Um, right. What's an example, um, because hopefully, we'll, you know, we're going to be listening to some of your works here, but what is an example of, of, a, of a big orchestral work that you have turned into? You mentioned some at the top, but uh, like something that people well, would... Let's ask this. Yeah. 
What is a what is an arrangement that you are particularly proud of the way it turned out? Yeah. Till Spiegel's Mary Prince, oh, Richard Strauss Tone Poem. The whole thing worked so beautifully for, for cut time players. I cannot tell you. Because I use the the licks that the players already play in the orchestra, and then they have to play a hundred percent more. So <laughs> Wow. Amazing. Amazing. So you you arrange you've done a lot of arrangements of orchestral works and you know, well there's a lot that people can go and listen to and we'll, you know, link that everywhere but um after three years of doing these arrangement you began composing um and you describe your work and i'm going to use your words because i like the way you say oh. it uh you describe your work <laughs> often as a blend of urban dance grooves with conventional modes of classical expression which i think is a very cool way of saying that so can you explain that a little bit your compositional approach and why engaging audiences and going to the people is so important to you Okay, well, I began composing late, um, like you said. So, you know, I didn't study composition other than, you know, for performance. Um, so I was able to do whatever I wanted. And what I wanted to do was write like Brahms and Mozart and Schubert and Mahler and Shostakovich and all my other favorite composers. In fact, I think most composers like to write like their favorite composers <laughs> or they start by writing like their favorite composers. Um, but I, I, I had two big goals. One was to write music that I wanted to play all the time. Uh, and then the other was to form a bridge, you know, for new audiences or wider audiences, um, that they could start to learn the rhythms, the language, the dialects of classical music expression. Um, because it's, it's such a great adventure that you don't get in uh, song forms and dance forms. Uh, and things of that nature. But, you know, as William Grant Still and Duke Ellington and his symphonic compositions have taught us, you could weave anything into a classical composition, mm. any kind of music um, that you could write out. So um, so that's what I, I tried to do. And um, and then to take them into play into non-traditional places like bars and restaurants and homes and street festivals. Uh, was just icing on the cake yeah. because as a composer, I get to say, I want the audience to participate and nobody's going to give me crap about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I get this license to experiment yeah. and not only experiment with my music, but to experiment with, you know, anything that I can arrange for, for my groups. Yeah. So being able to, to call the shots and have people say, okay, Rick, we're going to, we're going to try this. And uh, some people really love it. Um, some veterans and purists really hate it, uh, <laughs> but that's okay. You know, it just, it needs to be done. And if it doesn't sound like fun, we're just not going to do it. Mm, Absolutely. I love that. So while we're on the topic of your compositions, we are performing one of your compositions here at the Canton Symphony this coming season. As we mentioned at the top of the show, your essay after Sibelius. How does this piece fit into your compositional output? Okay. Well, aside from a student composition that I wrote while I was at CIM, a set of Paganini variations for unaccompanied bass, what was it, 17 years later, maybe it's, uh, I can't do the math right now. I, I, I had a dream one morning. It was a very vivid dream that Cut Time Players was returning to Detroit 
on foot from a tour. We had our, our naked instruments out. We were walking through this windswept uh, grassy <laughs> hill coming over this, this hill. And there was Detroit and the green hills of Detroit. It's not green hills at all, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> this is a dream, right? <laughs> and there was music that as we were coming up and rounding the top that I heard, and then there was descending music. And I rushed down to the computer. I got it in finale. And, you know, three and a half years later, I finished this 20 minute piece, um, which if I, if I say it was about my marriage and divorce, <laughs> will we'll make a lot of sense, but you know, it, it's better if, if people come to their own, apply whatever story they want to, to music, but that's how I started composing. And I was surprised how I, it, how to finish it. I relied on intuition, um, you know, figuring things out as I, as I went along and I made some mistakes. I'll have to revise the piece at some point, but, uh, I'm so glad Gerhardt loves it enough that yeah. he wants to program it with Sibelius's Third Symphony because that was the catalyst uh, for the piece. Mm -hmm. The coda of the first movement was our wedding anthem. Gotcha. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. Very, well, I, it, you know, art comes from authentic feelings and music comes from real memories and real and r what happens in life. And if, you know, it's, the reason why we listen to music and any type of music is because we connect to it and we have a reason to connect to it. So, I mean, it's really interesting to know the reason behind it. And I think you'd be happy to know, and I, I told you this in our conversation we had earlier, but uh, in Gerhardt's episode of, of, of the podcast in season one, he mentions your piece and Sibelius three and wanting to program it for a concert. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he's been thinking about it for, for a while. Um, yeah. So, since uh, yeah. since 2010, actually, uh, when he came to Detroit and conducted the DSO musicians in a strike concert. Oh yeah, I, oh, I wow. gave him a score and a CD at that time, and and uh, he said he loved it and wanted to program it. So we've wow. been working on this for 11 years. Wow! Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I'm it's so, happening. I'm so thrilled oh to see that it's it's come to fruition. Yeah, that's yeah. so. And it's a very very romantic large orchestra yeah. type of thing. Thank mm -hmm. uh, right. Richard Strauss and. Yeah. Sibelius, obviously. There's a little Shostakovich and Brahms and all my favorite composers. Awesome. So I'm, was... I'm not afraid to imitate because I, I believe imitation is is how we learn. It's how we grow. Uh, and there's there's quite a bit of me in there as well. Yeah. Of course. And, you know, I, I found a piece like yours. I, I, I have printed out the score. I have not yet studied it okay. at this point. But a piece like yours is the type of new work that an audience like ours in Canton can connect to. There's enough kernels of familiarity in there. It's the, the music itself might not be anything they've ever heard, but there's enough kernels of familiarity in there that they're going to really be able to grasp onto it. And I think that our audience is going to really love the piece. Yeah. And that I think is, you're going to have to play it twice. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow that you know that that would be that would be quite something if uh if the audience demanded an encore That'd i would be fun. absolutely Let's love do that. that yeah <laughs> but i i really feel like it, it new music scares a lot of people and yeah. pieces like yours are hopefully going to start breaking down these 
assumptions people have in their minds about what new music is and what it sounds like. And we are hoping that this is going to lead to a new era of programming in general for the orchestra of, okay, there's... Gerhardt talked about the second Viennese school has built up a lot of issues with new music in people's minds. And our goal now is to break that down. And we're so thrilled to do that with, with your piece. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I, I think it's fine to try to reinvent music, but for me, I'd like to pick up the old tools, blow the dust off, use the tool or make my own tools you know, based on what those old tools did and melody, memorable, memorable melodies, uh, driving harmonies, um, structure, sonata form is not dead. It, it, it worked for a psychological reason, you know, balancing the return of themes mm -hmm. um, to create meaning. And of course, there's no better meaning than the music that you can create yourself. But a lot of people will be able to figure out a meaning on the first listen. Mm -hmm. It it really needs to be immediately accessible. That's right. what I'm after. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, going, going back to accessibility and, and there, the, there's the accessibility of the listening and being able to hear something and understand it and love it. And then there's the accessibility of location, which we've mentioned yeah. a couple of times. And so now I'd like to ask you a little bit about your work with classical revolution and kind of talk, we've mentioned, we've hinted at what this is and what you, what this is, but can you talk a little bit about this organization and, and your work with it and, and what it, what it's for? Sure. Well, Classical Revolution started with a violist in the San Francisco Conservatory. Uh, his story is he couldn't book a recital hall, so he did it at the coffee house across the street, oh. uh, the Revolution Cafe. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and it was, I'm sorry, it was, a, uh, it was his chamber music recital. So his quartet, you know, mm. uh, had to do a, a recital that was juried. And uh, so he did it at the Revolution Cafe in the Mission District. And the idea took off. It soon became a monthly and then a weekly. And then there were several things going on across town at the same time under Classical Revolution. Uh, word got out, and um, by the time I learned about it in 2010 during the DSO strike, uh, there were about 25 chapters around the world. So I came down to Cleveland um, and saw the Cleveland chapter perform, and uh, I said, I got to do this. How do I do it? They said, call up Cherith, uh, get his okay, and you're good to go. So um, he jumped on board. He came out to Detroit and and we toured around a bit and did some things together and bonded and um, we've been having a great time ever since now my chapter is probably one of the more advanced chapters simply simply because i have all these arrangements right. um you know to do but we started out on a volunteer basis and i had tons of local freelancers and a couple of dso people come out and we just read stuff and reading you know takes kind of takes the pressure off, particularly in a bar <laughs> where everybody's drinking, you know, we're drinking a little bit on stage because we're volunteering, right? This is not a professional event. Right. It's just a, a an icebreaker. Let's call it an icebreaker. Okay. And it's early in the week, you know, so it doesn't interfere with the bar or the club's normal entertainment um, uh, activities, mm -hmm. you know, rock bands and jazz and things like that, uh, that, that really bring in a crowd. And we just, you know, we, 
had bits and pieces of, of people coming in. Some said they love it. If they didn't like it, they just left. No one ever said that that they really hated this. Um, uh, other than some purists and uh, a few <laughs> of my DSO colleagues you know, turned their ah. nose up at it. Oh. And I'm, but, it, you know, I knew it really needed to happen and it needs to happen on a much, much larger scale yeah. uh, if it's going to start trickling people up to um, symphony concerts or, or quartet concerts. Yeah. I, I, I love that idea. And I, Matthew can attest to this. I, I love the idea of just having the music out there and just if it if it permeates society in a more natural way. And it, it's because for a lot of people, the Symphony Hall is like this scary obelisk of rarefied, rarefied things. Exactly. You know, so if it's just a part of life and people go into a bar and it's there, then it's it seems less scary. And the barrier of entry that is the unknown of a concert hall is, is gone a little bit. So I think it's a wonderful idea and a wonderful thing. Well, I think of classical music as a church and, you know, inviting people to your church can be a really daunting thing, new people <laughs> to your church. And if, if, you know, if there's no welcoming committee or, or, you know, they're not talked to in the right way, you know, they may never come back. So we need to have a casual classical uh, events that, complement um you know the the sacred tradition that we have in our concert sanctuaries which by the way um because there's so many people it maximizes the potential of the music working by theater rules everyone's got to be seated and quiet and uh blah 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 but club rules you know where mm. people can get up and talk and uh drink and you know talk back a little bit you know that's a very different animal right? right that's the world of entertainment and jazz and things like that so but in classical music we've been so afraid of entertainment or rather opposed to entertainment that's our yang to our yin so to speak mm. but the thing about yin and yang is there's always a little bit of the other in right. what we do Right. So there is entertainment in a symphony concert. It's just not as entertaining as, you know, when the performers speak directly to the audience, uh, but we're speaking to them in other ways. We're worshiping the music, if you will, yeah. uh, you know, uh, with, a, with a canvas of silence around it and that maximizes it. But we really needed a casual tradition. And there used to be one, the salon tradition, right. you know, uh, middle-class people, you know, experiencing music in homes and friends, you know, uh, with a little bit of conversation and, and things like that. So yeah. I think we can get there. Yeah. Uh, but what I was leading up to is that with club rules, you pretty much have to amplify. Mm. And that's a very different animal for, for classical musicians. I have an amplification system right. uh, because cut time players start to do some outdoor gigs. So we had to amplify a little bit. And that worked even better inside uh, when I started going into bars and clubs. And I just keep the flow growing by acting like the DJ, right? <laughs> yeah. At the radio station. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. So I may have gotten a lot of this um, from the fact that I, I used to play in the Boston Pops Esplanade Orchestra mm. uh, mm -hmm. for four summers. And while that wasn't a full-time job, I was happy to have DSO. I did pick up on this idea of, well, people, you know, can drink and eat in Symphony Hall when they set up for Boston Pops. Why can't we do that with a symphony concert? Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious, 
What do you see as the place, as the role of the traditional classical concert going forward? We talked a lot about, you talked a lot about how the, these new ways to experience classical music can complement this. But all of us, certainly, we don't want to see the traditional concert go away. And we want to furthermore bring as many new people into the traditional experience as we can. How does the, the traditional concert experience then fit into all the new stuff that's going on today? Yeah. Um, well, I, I fully agree. The um, tradition is worthwhile. Like, like I said, it maximizes the potential impact of the music on everyone who's there and has paid a ticket. Um, but we need to have alternate alternatives uh, for people to get their feet wet in it because they're not getting it in schools. Uh, they're getting just the opposite as young adults, you know, with sports and video games and um, um, and, and pop music. Um, and that's fine. We, we need all of these things, but we need to show directly and more transparently the benefits to us, you know, as musicians who have this vantage point inside the music. We know what it's like to sit inside an orchestra or be at the front of an orchestra and have all that sound around you. Now we get that in the audience, but you know, whenever these audience members come up close and see the musicians playing and communicating and looking at each other, they start to get it. They start to get at the center of the music. We need to put the new audience at the center of the music, give them one or two really solid experiences uh, at that center. And then they start to get it, you know, that wordless instrumental music you know, not only means the world to us, but, you know, it's just a, a different kind of animal that could complement uh, every other music that they love. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you left DSO in 2012 and to focus more on, on all this, this work that you're doing, your compositions, cut time, all of these different projects. So what would you say are your major long-term goals with your current work and this idea of, of, of what you said, like new classical, what, like with, what are, what are you hoping to see in your career as it plays out with all this work that you're doing? Well, I was hoping that with, um, these cut time ideas, we could build and hire and train and build a, a franchise or a regular series of pop-up concerts, basically different restaurants, bars, clubs, churches, schools just just appear everywhere because we've got you know three teams per big city that could do th- things at the same time mm. um of what i call new classical yeah. um which is pretty much any kind of experimental uh presentations of classical music that that build bridges to uh less experienced audiences or music lovers um, but I haven't gotten to that point. I haven't <laughs> found the managing partners that can, yeah. can make that a reality. So I'm working on succession right now, um, finding who might be able to take it over or uh, just preserve it and the ideas and methods that I've developed um, in a book or two um, that the future could pick up where I've left off. Right. Um, certainly I'm leaving a lot of music uh as well and again the the composi- compositions 
which I should talk more about because they're, they have titles like get your groove on <laughs> pork and beans and, <laughs> uh, uh, things like that. Um, that hopefully will will draw some curiosity and it's the curious people that that we have the best chance to right. attract uh, a little bit but we've got to satisfy that curiosity we've got to answer the burning but unspoken questions because they don't know how to ask the questions most of the time and um and people who do uh, are able to to ask questions um they're going to do it awkwardly you know <laughs> so we've got to be able to ready to answer that. You know, what is classical? Why, why do you wear tails? You know, why do you play the Beethoven five every other year? <laughs> you know, and talk about the standards, talk about how we refresh the music, talk about how it's a little bit different every time, but they're not going to pick up on those subtleties. So we've, we've got to hammer them over the head on what difference that we as individuals can make, particularly you, Matthew, as a conductor, you know, every time you get up there and do Beethoven five, you've got to find one little kernel like Naime Yervi used to do with us. He'd find a different way to do uh, every piece, you know, even if we're doing a, a four peat that week. And mm. we just have to keep an eye on him because, <laughs> you know, we never knew when he was going to, you know, give us a, a <laughs> proverbial wink and a nod and we, we'd have to watch him because he's going to try to trick us up. <laughs> and this is, this is the sport of making music matter. This is, this is the game. Uh, of making a difference and people need to understand that it is a sport that it is a sort of uh, uh, athleticism or you know if only intellectually or emotionally um, that this music can be so different you know right. uh, spinning out of one little change from early on and, and spin out into other things mm -hmm. Naomi was brilliant at that and, and inspiring yeah. uh -huh. so Let's yeah, I would like to take a little bit of time for you to share a little bit about some of these compositions um, and hopefully our listeners can get little sneak peeks at some of these things. But would you mind sharing with us um, some, some of these compositions that you've mentioned with these fun titles? <laughs> okay. Well, I talked about the essay after Sibelius being my first orchestral composition and I didn't think I'd, I'd become a composer at all. Uh, then I finished this and then it was it actually won a reading. I submitted it for the African-American composers readings that DSO had in 2003. And then Thomas Wilkins, who was our um, assistant conductor at the time, and he always directed the classical roots concerts. He chose it for to be to get a full premiere in 2006. Wonderful. And then I started to see if I could be a, a, a an intentional composer. <laughs> So the first piece I tried to do um, was for string sextet because I had no strings. So, and I started to write a piece about me and my fiance, you know, how we got together and, you know, the different stages of that relationship that hopefully anyone could relate to. And uh, see, so yeah, I think the second movement was called Encounters and it's, it's sexy. It's very sexy music. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think a lot of music is, is, is very sexy, particularly if it's just strings. So, you know, it fit right in. Uh, anyways, it's great piece. It ended up wedding bells, five movements, great piece. Uh, and then I started to um, do a little bit of rock influence with the uh, Grando for uh, oboe and string quintet. Uh, and that led to trying to do to get your groove on which uh is a classical player 
taking a night out on the town looking for a dance group to fit his mood after playing a Brahms symphony, <laughs> which, which sounds really terrible. But uh, but we go to these different clubs. So, you know, a little uh, classic rock, a little, you know, early jazz, then um, some rockabilly, all these kinds of things. And he thinks about music history in between each venue. So oh. and you kind of hear that. The audience kind of hears that. Cool. Uh, so they get into it. <laughs> uh, and then just to skip ahead a little bit, um, probably one of my biggest pieces is called Highland Park, Michigan, City of Trees. Now, Highland Park is a very small suburb within Detroit. It's surrounded by Detroit. It's very inner city. Used to have these big, tall, beautiful Dutch elm trees that had to be cut down when Dutch elm disease came along and threatened to topple on people's houses. Mm. So. Detroit uh, Highland Park looked very desolate uh, after they cut down all these trees. So uh, it kind of contrasts the past when there were all these beautiful trees with the present when there weren't. And its attitude, um, or rather also reflecting symbolically an attitude kind of against mainstream education. Mm. So the, the piece is really about, you know, uh, bullying, and um, and the effect on 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 students mm. who want to learn. Wow. wow. Yeah. Oh, but it's very you know it's got hip hop, it's got gospel, it's it's got <laughs> some Islander music, you know, for contrast. It's a, it's a very strong piece, and I finally orchestrated it two years ago. Wonderful. That's amazing. So, which piece would you like to share with our audience today? <laughs> well, I think City of Trees would be would be really indicative. The thing about classical music is, you know, you can't just pick one excerpt of it and, of and, and have it represent the whole piece. So it's kind of going through the whole thing. But I hope we play, I know, the snippet to, to put on that will get people to listen to the whole thing. All Wonderful. right. So here is a small clip of Rick Robinson's City of Trees. So I want to follow up about something you mentioned just before we talked about your compositions about the conductor's role in engaging with an audience and engaging with the community. Do you think that there is a role for the musicians of the orchestra to do the same? And would you say that it's something that is being done enough or could be done more at this point we definitely have to do more in fact i don't think we've even begun mm. uh to explore all the ways that the musicians themselves could be the best uh conduits or the best translators of what classical music does for us to curious new listeners um we need to lay down the academia for a while and talk from the heart, talk personally, emotionally, you know, about what this music does for us, uh, frankly, you know, I mean, we try to play every piece like it's the one that saved our lives, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but trying to put that into words, you know, we'd almost have to be, have become English majors. 
Uh, mm. But there are people who are really good at writing about the emotional impact of music, such as Alex Ross or, or, or you know, some of the, the newer uh, music critics, what music critics that are left. Mm -hmm. um, but really, it's it's the non musicians, you know, put things in language that we classical musicians don't tend to use. So. It, it almost takes asking, you know, our family and our close friends, well, what do you think of classical music or what don't you like about classical music? And then trying to, to answer those questions. Whenever I do Classical Revolution Detroit, I'm imagining that everyone is family and, and friends, that there are no strangers here, that they're just genuinely curious on why you chose to play classical music and get a, a straight, honest and effective answer. Now, metaphors work really well. I use several. Um, besides the church analogy, um, classical music is like a sailboat and, and pop music is like a powerboat, <laughs> right? <laughs> Any, anybody can, can do it, you know, just get on that throttle and the ride's over in a few minutes. Whereas sailing, you have to know a lot more about what you're doing or what you're listening to. Uh, it's quieter. It uses physics, you know, rather than electronics, uh, mm. um, uh, cooking, um, you know, the music on the page is kind of like the recipe. It's not the music. It's, you know, the, the recipe and we bring our ingredients, our instruments together, and we are the cooks and we can spice up the music in any way we want. You know, we can change <laughs> that recipe up in any way we want, yeah. um, and, and make it fresh and ours. It's all about taking ownership and sharing that, that license, uh, for the music with people who don't think they have any license or, or right to be in the audience because, you know, they don't know what a movement is. They don't know what a development section is. So we need to clue people in and we're going to need to do it uh, a little bit verbally, uh, maybe a little bit, you know, with visual projections. Mm -hmm. um, dancers, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to experiment with dancers. So there's all kinds of ways. All kinds of ideas. I'll leave it there. We had a wonderful collaboration a few years ago with a local dance troupe. Uh, we did Carmina Burana. And it was at this point, to this point, the only sold out Masterworks concert that we've had in my time with the Canton See? Symphony. And yeah. it was incredible. It yeah. was it, having that added element brought people who would not have otherwise come out to the symphony that night. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So these kinds of collaborations, partnerships uh, have the potential to bear really big fruit. Um, and I think they could be more permanent. I think, mm -hmm. you know, if I had my druthers, I'd have a choreographer, you know, on my team, I'd have a poet, I'd, I'd have a visual artist, someone who could do um, visualizations right. based on my compositions, I would love to have that kind of thing. Um, the, the stuff with the poets has been truly fantastic. Um, and there's other ways to collaborate that I haven't thought of yet. Right. Well, thank you, uh, so much for being with us today and for sharing your music with us and your story and, and all of the, the wonderful things that you've done with your life. And, um, we always ask everyone the question, how do we orchestrate change? And I think, I'm going to ask you the same question. You've been doing that for a while. You've literally been orchestrating, um, right? You've been writing music and, and changing things up. But looking forward at the larger picture of classical music and the issue of representation and the issue of audiences and the issue of, you know, it's seeming like it's a, 
a dying art or what do you see as the way that we orchestrate change moving forward? Well, going back to the church analogy, I want to see everyone in my church. I, I don't target, you know, black audiences. I don't target young audiences. I want all curious music lovers uh, to give classical a try. So, excuse me. So I think again, you know, if we empower the musicians to be very personal and intimate and informative, um, you know, that that eventually uh, will lead to a trickle of, of sales and then, you know, maybe a steady stream of sales uh, to the Canton Symphony. Mm -hmm. um, but we've got to be out there um, where the people are, where they go to discover for themselves other kinds of music. Right. Um, but we're going to have to amplify. We're going to have to be entertaining <laughs> or infotaining um, oh. might be a better word to use and um, clue people in, particularly about shaping the music. And I know Gerhardt and I will we'll both get on this. We'll, we'll sound like the same <laughs> person. That music that doesn't have phrasing or shape, you know, is just a waste of time. Right. Um, because we, we've learned the notes and the rhythms, but but the music is in between the notes and the rhythms and it, it's in be, it's between us. So um, we need to be very demonstrative, use our body language to add extra drama or to dramatize what we believe is going on in the music. Um, you know, even more than the Berlin Phil, you know, the bass is moving like trees, swaying like trees. Oh, I would love to do that. Uh, but um, yeah, I just think uh, there's a lot of ways we can cut classical loose and intrigue people enough to come see us then play in our orchestras. Right. Rick Robinson, thank you so, so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Rick Robinson, double bassist in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra for 22 years, founder of the Cut Time Players and composer of the essay after Sibelius, which will be performed on our upcoming Canton Symphony Orchestra Masterworks season. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.